Okay, take your Bible, if you would, this evening, and let's <clears throat> go back to the book of First Thessalonians, where we started last week, and we are going to be in chapter 2 this evening. <clears throat> so if you would, look there, First Thessalonians and chapter number 2. Uh, last week, we started into sort of a new, uh, shortened uh, series. We had sort of walked through 1 Peter 5 just for a little bit, and on uh, Sunday mornings, we've been in the book of John, and that'll uh, stay the same, uh, at least for uh, the foreseeable future. Uh, but last week, we started sort of a new um, mini-series, if you want to call it that, that will probably carry us up through uh, the week of Thanksgiving. And the series itself, or the thought itself, is not particularly about being thankful, uh, though that will be addressed at certain times. Uh, but it will, it's in this vein or in this mindset that we started in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 last week. Uh, you remember that in verse number 2 of chapter 1, uh, Paul is writing to this group and he says, "...we give thanks to God always for you all." making mention of you in our prayers. And then Paul proceeds to talk about some of the things that he is thankful for in the church at Thessalonica. We gave you a little bit of background last week about what this city was like, that it was sort of a metropolitan area, one of the biggest cities uh, of that time of history. It's still the second biggest city, uh, second largest city in the country of Greece today. And so uh, it, remember there was two different highways that kind of flowed through it, one going north and south and one taking the Roman, Roman Empire to the west. And uh, there was a, a great port there. We even showed you a picture of that last week. And uh, that really they had the opportunity to reach the world almost incidentally. We know that that opportunity was given to them by God, but they really didn't even have to go out of their way to influence people from around the world. But with that influence also, we talked about last week, came great persecution. Uh, we talked about the fact that Paul and Silas and Timothy helped start this church and really initially teach them and birth this church into existence. And then they were run out of town. Uh, a man named Jason that uh, was uh, inviting people into his house and hosting them and showing uh, great care to them, but also giving the gospel through that and in that. He was run out of town and actually joined back up with them uh, later. So there was a lot of persecution that was there. And uh, we, we, kind of at the end, we just barely mentioned this last week, but we talked about the fact that it was a city that was full of gods, um, all sorts of gods to all sorts of different things. There was uh, gods actually to their uh, government system and sort of how the Greeks were very proud of their system of culture and society, almost a political god, if you want to uh, even call it that, uh, that, that would be very true. It's kind of their god of their society and kind of their structure. So it's almost a political god. There was uh, gods to uh, physical desires and uh, embellishment. There was gods to sexuality and gods to pleasure. Uh, there were gods to a little bit of everything. But if you really look at them, it's a lot of the same gods that our society faces Today, not necessarily in uh, graven idol form, uh, but you think about their society, their culture system, their political system. They thought they were better than the Romans who had sort of taken them over, and there was a lot of controversy there. So they even made a god and worshipped their form 
of government that they had once uh, kind of developed. There's, uh, in our day today, we know that uh, people chase after pleasure, desire, and sexuality. A lot of the same things that this church was facing, we face even today. And so we took that passage there at the beginning of chapter number one, where he says, we give thanks for you always. He was so encouraged by this church. We mentioned that the pattern last week for a lot of Paul's letters, he starts with a greeting, which he does in this passage, and then usually he would give some form of prayer or thanks or encouragement. He would sort of mention to them, here's some of the things that you're doing well. Uh, which is why it is impressive that, uh, for instance, with uh, Galatians, that he really just jumps in and says, here's all the things you're doing wrong. He almost always starts with, here's something that you're doing well. But with the Thessalonians, he really takes at least the whole first chapter, and we're going to see tonight most of the second chapter, and even a bulk of the third chapter. Over half of this book is really about things that Paul is thankful for in this church. This church is doing extremely well spiritually. And you say that we kind of, you see that we titled there, it's, it's on the uh, top of your page. I made it more grammatically correct on the front, thankful for church. On the inside, I took a little bit more liberty, a church to be thankful for. Now, I know that is not completely correct grammar. Uh, I thought, I, I heard a pastor reference one time uh, an illustration that he used for being able to use a preposition at the end of a sentence. And he said one time Winston Churchill was writing a speech in an article and one of his assistants was reading through it and uh, he kind of came to the end of a sentence and used a preposition and the, the editor said, ah, you're, not, you're not really supposed to do that. And Winston Churchill replied, that is a rule up with which I will not put. And some of you will get that, some of you will get that a little later. But for ease of phrase sake tonight, we're going to say that we're looking at a church that we can be thankful for. And a church, not just that we are thankful for because of what we get out of it, but hopefully a church that others will be thankful for. Hopefully, the people that came to our church on Sunday as visitors and as new guests, hopefully when they went home, they found things in our church and in our people. Remember, because not just the building and the carpet and the renovation, because the church is not a building, the church is a people. And so when they came and they met us as a church, hopefully they found things for which they could be grateful and thankful. Hopefully we have people, neighbors, um, co-workers, family members, and friends that know that we are attached to this local body. And there may be some extension of our church through your life, through my life, through our lives as members, for which other people can be grateful and thankful because of the way that it influences them for Christ. Uh, I, I was thinking back to one particular man that came through the viewing, uh, when we had the viewing here uh, for Dad, a co-worker of Jeff Lewis that had been to our church just a couple times, a, couple, a handful of times, and he had met my dad in a restaurant and some different things, and he came through with such emotion about the loss and the different things that came here. And there's a lot of different ways that you could look at that. And he had met my dad a few times, but really what he expressed when he came through is he knew how much of an impact this church is in the life of Jeff Lewis and how much of a part of his family it is. And so when his friend suffered a loss and within his church, it affected 
him as well. Why? Because there's things there that attach multiple people to us as a body, a local body and part of the body of Christ. So bringing that to kind of wrap up our recap for the day. Last week, we talked about first from chapter one that he says that something you can be thankful for, what he was thankful for in their church. He was thankful for their faith, for their love and for their hope. And in fact, he adds words to that. He says, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope. And that's what we spent most of the time last week really discussing. And we talked about, well, faith and, and love and hope, if we're not careful, those all seem like feelings, like things we just kind of believe. And if we nudge ourselves enough or if we muster up enough gumption, we can just have faith and think and believe, or we can feel love towards others, or we can kind of hope mystically that things turn out well. But Paul puts, he says, your faith is not like that. Your faith shows work. He says it it works itself out in your life, your salvation. What Christ has done for you has produced something in your life, and it's evident by how you Work And then he carries that further. He says, your labor of love, that you look at others and you don't just feel something toward them. You do things toward them. You express your love the way that Jesus expressed his love. And then we finished talking about how he had this patience of hope and patience in our hope is different than just "Mm, I hope things work out. There is a patience to it. There is a discipline, almost an action to it, because you can sort of be patient in your mind but you're most patient with your actions by how your mind keeps your actions in check. And so he says, those aren't things that you're just saying you have, you're displaying them. And then he gets into chapter 2. We're going to read just one verse to start, and then we're going to go back and work through uh, a bulk of the chapter together. But I want you to look at verse number 13, if you would. That's where we're going to draw the bulk of our um, topic or our idea tonight. What's the second thing in this series that we can be thankful for as a church? Or what is an indicator? You have it there kind of in your bulletin, I think near the end of your first paragraph. It says, what is the DNA of a church for which others can look at them and be grateful? What is the DNA of a church that its members should be grateful for? Well, first, we said a church that is anchored in faith and love and hope. But where do we get that faith? and love, and hope. It doesn't just get put in us naturally. And when we're saved, we may have portions of faith, and hope, and love. But where we find them, and where they are really built up, we're going to see those tonight. And we'll start there in verse number 13. It says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. So remember, we're walking through these prayers, and these things for which Paul says, I'm thankful. So last week we talked about the first one. This week he says, also thank we God without ceasing because when you received the word of God, which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Let's look at that one more time and we'll ask God to bless that reading and what he's going to teach us this evening. But notice it again. I want you to underline the phrase, if, if you do that in your Bible, the Word of God. You could do it there in your bulletin as well, because that's where the emphasis is going to be. A church for which we can be thankful is a work of God's Word. It is focused and central 
to God's Word. God's Word is central to that church. So look at, look at it one more time. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing. He said, everywhere we go, Paul says, when we are in young, struggling churches, when we are in places we are being persecuted, and we need something to be joyful for, besides outside, physically, that we're really looking for, we think back about your church, and what do we think? He says, because you, when you received the Word of God, when we came and we preached God's Word to you, you didn't receive it, says which you heard of us. You, didn't, you received it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth, the Word of God. He says, you took God's Word, not as our Word to you, because that can be forsaken pretty quickly. Isn't it interesting we can hear an opinion on one channel of the news and, and flip to another channel, and they may give us another opinion, and one may give one fact or another, and our opinions can change like that. But these people, when they heard the Word of God, didn't base it on what they felt about Paul or Silas or Timothy. They based it on the fact that it was from God. And so tonight, let's ask God to help us receive and anchor ourselves in His Word, much like these people did there in the first century. Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you that you've given it to us. And so we ask that we would pay close and earnest attention to it. We ask that we would anchor ourselves in it daily as individuals, corporately as a church, and that spiritually we would rely on you and you alone, not our opinion or the opinions of certain men or even uh, preachers or pastors or even our own church leadership, but that we would mainly and fully, completely rely on you and your word first. And so we pray that you'd help teach us what that looks like this evening from your word. And we pray this in your precious name. Amen. You see there in your bulletin, sort of that last paragraph before it starts getting into your points, it says there's a lot of churches throughout the world who do many good things. Uh, and we put that kind of in quotes because they're good deeds and they're good actions. And when done with the right motivation, they can produce good and spiritual results. But notice it says, but if they don't have a focus on God's word, those good things are done in vain. And we can have a lot of good actions as a church. What we did Sunday was a good thing. Uh, having our, our doors and our arms figuratively open to embrace people as they came in and just kind of welcome them and, and put them in a place where they could worship God with us and they could hear God's word. And then we went down and, and, and the things that we did were good. The things we had for children and for families and hay rides and all those different things. And then settled back in for singing and scripture reading and a little bit more time as a, as a devotional time. Then we dismissed early for to, to rest and to just have a different uh, a pace of things for that day. Those are good things. But if it's not focused on God's word, it's a vain thing. It doesn't mean that everything we say or everything that we do, we have to somehow illustrate it some spiritual way, but it means that the focus of our heart, we are anchored in God's Word first, that our opinions are based in God's Word, that our program is based in God's Word, that our thought process, that our actions are based in what we learn from God's Word. Notice it says we can have nice things or be sweet people and even have great programs, but we must be anchored first in God's Word. If we want to be a church where people are genuinely converted and not just slightly changed or modified, not just taken from sort of okay bad people to sort of okay good people, when we're not just 
uh, uh, modifying our behavior for when we're together, but genuinely, truly converted by the gospel of Christ, changed by His Spirit, turning from sin, trusting in faith, and looking to God, a God alone. The only way that a church could ever do that is if it is anchored in God's Word. And the only way that we can do it as individuals is if we are anchored in God's Word. And so tonight, you'll see those three things. What does it look like? What does the Word of God do? Or what does it look like in this church for which Paul is thankful? And you see the three things there that, number one, the Word was preached. Then the Word was received, because it can be preached but not received, and then it's of no effect. So it was preached and it was received. And then once it was received, you see that, number three, it was not hindered by people or by petty things. And so let's look at each of those as we walk through this evening. Now, as we get into this first one, number one, the word is preached. It would be easy quickly to maybe tune that out a little bit because typically at one time we have one person up here preaching. And in the last few weeks especially, it may be different people at times. And we may have guest speakers and missionaries come in. It's typically just one person up here preaching at a time. It would be chaos if we all try to do it at once. It might be interesting, but it would be a little bit chaotic. But it's really kind of one person. And for the most part, most churches, the majority of the church members are not getting up and preaching and kind of alternating and just taking turns all year long. That's not typically the way it works. That's not the way that it's modeled for us in the New Testament, that God's Word is preached by certain people. So it would be easy to just skip over this part and just say, well, we have to preach the Word of God. But there has to be some accountability for whoever is in this pulpit at different times. And the church is the one that holds those people accountable. Uh, We don't sit and listen as a congregation just deaf and, and dumb to those things and just tell us what to do. It's not that way. We must first be anchored in God's Word. But here's another key, that God has called more than just one person or two people or three people in this church to preach. God has called us all to preach with our lives. You go to Matthew and the Great Commission. The Great Commission was not given to a preacher or to certain preachers. It was given to the church. And it says, go ye therefore, teach, preach to all nations, making disciples. This is a mission of our lives. So we are all called to preach in some way. Now, it may not be behind a pulpit. It may not be in front of a congregation. But if you're a mom or a dad, it may be in a bedroom in front of your kids. It may be at a kitchen table as, as you're uh, walking through the day's events with your kids or, or your grandkids. It may be at breakfast with uh, someone that is a co-worker or a friend. Your life preaches something, and people are listening and watching. So what is it to preach? What are we to preach? What should come from this pulpit? But then what should go out from our congregation? And it should be the word of God. Notice again in verse 13, it says, For we uh, thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which he heard of us. Now notice it says, which you heard of us. It doesn't say which fell from the sky on leaflets, though that would be neat. God chose a certain way for his word to go out to people. And interestingly enough and humbling enough, He chose to do it through other people. He's not here giving us an audible voice. Like I said, He doesn't drop pamphlets from the sky with new word in them. But our church 
when it invites someone to come and speak and preach, they hear it from another human being. I'm a human being, and the, everyone that's preached here recently, we're all humans, and we're all sinners. We're all faulty, and we all fail. However, we all have God's infallible and perfect Word. And that's where the authority is. But more than that, people around us aren't going to hear the Word of God. Your coworker that is lost, your neighbor that uh, does not currently believe, your friend that is not converted, most likely will not be driving down the road sometime and hear the audible voice of God teach them and tell them to repent of their sins and turn and look toward God. Where will they hear that? From other people. Because most of the time, a lost person doesn't just pick up the Word of God on his own and read it as a child of believer. The God's Word is written to all people, but it specifically means something to His children. And so how will people hear the Word unless it is preached? By not just from a pulpit, but by our lives. And how is it to be preached? Look back, if you would, at... Um, verse number one and two of this chapter. Let's just walk quickly through these verses. A bulk of this chapter is really about Paul and Silas and uh, Timothy, their experience when they first brought the Word of God to the Thessalonians. So what does it look like when the Word of God is preached? What are the characteristics of properly preaching God's Word? Not, again, not just from here, though it is definitely the requirements for it to be preached from here, but think about these requirements as our own lives as well. If I'm going to share the gospel with others, if I'm going to teach people about my God, it has to be God's way. So let's look at that if you would. Look at verse number one. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. So he says, you remember when we came to you. And now he's going to give some different characteristics, and you have them there in your bulletin. Uh, it's kind of got the little dot there at the bottom of your uh, first page, and we're just going to walk through these. But look at verse 2. Even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. So he says, before we came to you, we were in the city of Philippi, and we were kicked out. We were jailed. Remember the Philippian jailer, that we were jailed there, we were tortured there, we were mistreated, and we were shamed there. And then after we were done preaching there, what does he say at the end of that verse? We were bold in our God, in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. He said, after we were done suffering in Philippi, we left and we came to you and we did the same thing. And we did it with a lot of contention and problems there too. So what is preaching the Word of God involved? Look at the first thing there kind of in this list. It, nev it never or it does not shrink back from suffering. It doesn't back away in and of itself, especially within the church. Whoever is pastoring or preaching or, or teaching should not shy away from suffering or from uh, mistreatment or from questioning that may come from giving the Word of God plainly and truly and boldly. Remember, he says, we preached in Philippi as long as we possibly could. And when they wanted to kill us and threw us out, we found somewhere else to keep preaching. We weren't discouraged. We weren't uh, distraught. Why? Because our confidence wasn't in our preaching. Our confidence was in our God. And our confidence was not in the result of our preaching. Because if it were, I, I may be a very discouraged person. And if the result of how your life brings people to Christ 
is your motivation, then you might be a very discouraged person too. But notice it says we found our boldness in our God. Look at verse 3. For our exhortation was not of deceit. That's your second thing, that it it should be done boldly. You see that there in verse number 2. But then it also, preaching does not deceive. You can't trick someone into the gospel. Um, There's a lot of different things that happen in that name today. If you turn on your TV or uh, you go to certain churches and certain places and different things, and there's almost this trickery, and there's, there's all sorts of different ways that it happens. There's this easy believism kind of idea where it's sort of one, two, three, pray after me and praying you're saved. And there's all sorts of different problems that come with that. It doesn't mean someone can't trust the gospel the first time they hear it and instantly, but it doesn't also mean that you can say, I've heard it this way. Uh, uh, not too, well, it's been a few years, I heard of a youth group and they went out one day and led 130 people to Christ on the corner of whatever road it was. And I thought, man, that is amazing. I wonder how that happened. And uh, in hearing their testimony and different things, a lot of the teenagers, this is kind of the card that they were given and they would run out and they knock on the window. Somebody would roll it down thinking they were selling something. They'd say, uh, do you believe that you've done something wrong? Yes. Do you would you want to go to hell? No. Would you rather go to heaven? Yes. Then would you pray or would you believe something if it meant that you could go to heaven? Yes. Then would you say this and they kind of have somebody repeat after me kind of thing and then they'd run back to their you know, corner and kind of high five each other and stuff like that. That is a deceitful way and it's not a true conversion of someone to Christ and Paul says we did not deceive you into believing. God worked in your heart. And there's, there's all sorts of things. There's prosperity gospel stuff. You believe and receive, and then God will give back to you. And there's all these different things. He says, preaching is not to be done with deceit. Then also notice it says, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, meaning uh, for dirty motivation, for underhanded things. And that word guile specifically it links itself to kind of money. And we, we heard uh, a few weeks ago talking about filthy lucre and all these different things. He says, we didn't do this for our own gain. That's really what he's teaching. We don't do this for our own prosperity. We don't do it because we need something or we're trying to get something. We don't preach or minister to you in a way that helps us gain financially or physically. Why? Look at verse number four. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Now that is, that is a great phrase. And it should change the way that we think about our mission in this world. Notice, if someone were to give you something precious, if, has anyone in here ever been a ring bearer for a wedding? Like, not the little kid walking down the aisle, but like a best man you held on. Anybody done that? Okay, I've, I've done, yeah, okay, Monty and I have done that, okay. You, you don't want to lose that thing, right? Mainly because it is not yours. You've been entrusted with it. Uh, before Joy and I got engaged, there's a long story, maybe I'll tell you that sometime, uh, I tried to get engaged like five times, and it kept not working. We got in a car accident. Somebody rear-ended us. Then she got stomach flu, and it's just like thing after thing after thing. And I really wanted to get engaged, not just for getting engaged. sake. I wanted to get engaged so the ring would not be in my pocket and get lost over the course of that time. Because I was like, don't lose this thing. I can't do another one of these things, not for a long time at least. And notice, that's kind of the idea. He says, we were put in trust with the gospel. God has given us this precious thing that can change lives and he expects us to handle it a certain way. Notice it says, 
Even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. And notice you see that there it seeks to please God and not men. True preaching seeks to please God and not men. Notice it says it does not seek to flatter. Look at verse number 5. For neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know. He says we didn't try to flatter you into trust in the gospel and try to convince you that God needs you for some reason or you are a great candidate for salvation. He said we let you know you are wicked and vile and nasty and without God you have no hope. That is real preaching. And our lives, we can't flatter or trick or deceive someone into trusting and following the gospel. It's a real decision. And it almost feels like a hopeless task, doesn't it? Have you ever thought about your task in giving the gospel? You need to go find someone in this world. You need to convince them that without God, everything they've ever done in their life is wicked and will not be accepted by Him. And that because everything they've done is evil and nasty and on their own, they will never find their way to salvation. They need to trust in the work and life of someone else that lived 2,000 years ago and died for them and now has risen from the dead. And they cannot do it on their own. Have you ever, it's like trying to think of how am I going to convince someone to do that? It's like no one will ever want to believe what I am telling them. But here's the wonderful thing is that God's preaching or his real work is not based on us and what we're telling. It's based on the fact that his spirit then moves in someone's heart and life. The gospel, we don't want to believe the gospel always initially, but God's spirit works in our heart and opens our lives and opens the lives of those that we witness to and those that we uh, bring the gospel to. And it says we don't have to flatter. Notice it says, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is our witness. Look at verse 6. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But notice this, this is interesting how he says this in verse 7. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse, that literally means like a nursing mother, cherisheth her children. So notice it says we don't focus on selfish gain. We don't speak to flatter. This is done boldly, and it's a harsh in some ways and rough message, but we do it gently in our spirit though our message to the world and though the message from a pulpit and from our lives is that the world is lost and sinful we don't mistreat them or abuse them or act like we are anything better than they are but we are gentle why do we need to be gentle because we were just like them because without God, I am in the exact same place even the most wicked of imaginable sinners could be. And it's only for God's mercy that he is spared. And notice he says, as a nursing mother cherisheth her child, overly gentle with love. We are to carry and preach the gospel gently. But then there's some other things. He says, notice we share personally and sacrificially. Notice in verse number 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. He says, we preached the gospel unto you, but then we gave you our own souls. We told you our own story. We shared our own message with you personally. We gave our lives to you. You have to, I would be leery, let's, let's say it this way, if I were an unsafe person, I would want, I would be leery of someone who only spoke highly of themselves, or only spoke in a way that I have this figured out, 
I have it all nailed down. Trust me, I've got it. I'd be leery of that kind of preaching. Hopefully you should be too if that comes from a pulpit that were someone that were at a pulpit here. You should be leery of that too as I've all got this all figured out. Here's how you do this. God has showed it all to me and never shares their own soul and their own failures and their own problems and their own struggles. It doesn't mean that our pulpit or our lives become a confessional but it means that we can share with someone our imperfections. Why? Because it only glorifies Christ that He has saved us. Look at verse 9. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Real preaching works hard, whether it is in preparation, whether it's from this pulpit, but also from our lives. Sometimes we give up on giving someone the gospel because it gets hard or because it's inconvenient or it gets in the way. But real preaching, he says, from our pulpit and from our lives works hard. Look at the last two things. It pursues holiness in verse 10. You're witnesses of God also. How holily and justly and unblameably we, we behaved ourselves among you that believe. That should go without saying. It's difficult to listen to preach to someone preaching that is not living in a way that they preach. So he says, I need to preach to you, but we also have to live a certain way. We will fail, we will sin, and we are not perfect, and we should humbly take on any sort of instruction from whoever we can. But he said, but to our utmost ability, we live in a way that should be an example to us. It's difficult, I heard it quote this way, it's difficult to take, some, take someone somewhere or send someone somewhere that you have not been yourself. So Paul says, we live in a way that's an example. And then look at the last one, verses 11 and 12. You know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father. So first he says, as a mother, we're gentle and we nourish. And now as a father, is he saying the opposite? Notice he says, doth with his children, that we would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. He says, like a father, we encourage and we instruct. And though there may be some firmness to it, it is not... Uh, abusively. It is not lashingly. It is encouraging to walk worthy because God is worthy of your life. It's like a, it's not, not a picture of a dad that may uh, uh, mistreat his child into submission, but a dad who boldly encourages and in the right moments applies what pressure that he needs. I'll give an example of my dad did this one time when I was in the fourth grade. We went on a field trip and I, being the smart one that I was, we got in a conversation next to a payphone when they still had those. And uh, I, my, somebody was like, oh, I'm going to call 911. I was like, you can't. It's, it's going to call 911. Like, no, a payphone can't call. I don't have any coins. I didn't put any coins in. So it can't call 911. I'm like, yes, it can call 911. We were at Jamestown. Yeah, it can call 911. No, it can't. We went back and forth. I said, watch, 911. Listen. <laughs> So I called him. Well, in the answer, I realized that was not a good decision. So I hung it up as quick as I could. That night, of course, my teacher was upset when they called back, told who it was, and uh, said you should keep better handle on your student and all these different things. And I was like, buddy, I was just trying to help this one and show him. And when I got home, you know, my teacher was upset. I believe my mom was upset and different things. And the conversation was like, well, your dad's going to have to deal with this. And uh, 
I was like, oh boy, I don't know what that means. And oh, I know what it means, but I don't know exactly how harshly this means. You know, all these different things. So I'm just waiting. I'm just, I'm just dreading this whole thing. And it was uh, whatever day it was. It might have been a Tuesday because Dad didn't get home till later that evening. So it was even worse. I think he might have just sat outside to make it worse. <laughs> and so he walks in my room. He sits down. And I just like, here's everything that I did. You know, I'm telling him all this stuff. You know, I kind of stand clinchingly, just kind of ready for whatever may be coming, ready for his wrath and anger. And uh, I'll never forget. Now, there was, a moment, there was moments he knew when to apply pressure and different things. But he just put his hand on my shoulder. He said, we, we explained it all. And he just said, you shouldn't do that again. He said, kind of expressed his disappointment. And he said, we'll work through this. And I don't remember his exact words, but I just remember his patience. And it almost moved me more in that moment to do the right thing than maybe even just yelling and shouting at me in that moment, though I may have gotten the picture with that too. And when we work with people, when we preach from a pulpit or from our lives, we guide. And sometimes there needs to be pressure, but sometimes there needs to be an understanding hand. We're pretty much out of time, but look at the last two this evening. The word was received, because when we preach it, we have to receive it ourselves. We can't just preach to others all the time. We have to be preached to ourselves. So as a church, we must be willing to receive the word as it is the truth of God. Like we learned in John 10 a couple of weeks ago, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they follow him. Do you know and receive the word of God? We're working with Ellie in Boston right now. and They have fast little brains and bodies. And uh, it amazes me what they can take in without paying attention. Because I'll think I have, what did I just say? And they'll repeat it like word for word. I'm like, how did you do that when you were swinging upside down on the monkey bars, not listening to me? And then they repeat it right back word for word. But do we go through our lives swinging, playing, and doing all these different things, kind of hearing the word of God? Or do we sit and look and truly receive? We've had those conversations with our kids before when they're looking you in the eye and they're countenance is just a little bit different and they just listen that's the way that we are supposed to deal with the word of god then look at the last one the word was not hindered verses 14 through 20 i hope you'll go back and read and kind of study all these different things that they did it says for ye brethren became followers of the churches of god which in judea are in christ jesus for ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen even as they have of the jews who both killed the lord jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us and they please not god and are contrary to all men forbidding us to speak to the gentiles that they might be saved to fill up their sin always he is condemning this group of people that is hindering the word of god he says you can't go preach you can't go teach this he says for the wrath for them wrath has come upon to the othermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. And he goes on and talks more about how the presence of the Lord, he says, for ye are our glory and our joy. But what, is, what does he really see? He says, you received the word of God, and then you didn't let it be hindered. When it got hard, you didn't quit. When something got in the way, you didn't back down. You kept living what you received. And if we as a church want to be a church for which God, and in spirit the Apostle Paul in Thessalonians tonight, 
If we're going to be a church for which God is grateful and thankful and expresses gratitude, we have to handle the Word of God rightly in how we listen, in how we preach, in how we give it to those that are around us, not just while in this room, but in our lives.